Good morning. We're continuing our studies into the speeches found in the book of Acts, which make up about a third of that letter. As we've been saying, Luke's book, The Acts of the Apostles, it's really the second of a two-volume work that he produces. The first is the Gospel of Luke, and then he wasn't uh, satisfied with just going up to Jesus' resurrection. He takes from Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and then chronicles the birth of the church. And, and so we have a record of some of the events that, uh, that occurred and the speeches that he recorded. And we were able to find one this morning, Peter, at the Feast of Pentecost. Um, Jesus instructed his apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and what he said is, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They waited 50 days, and then 50 days after the Passover at the Feast of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit came. The promise was fulfilled, and the coming of the Spirit was not subtle. It was audible, and visual and very powerful. It was like the sound of the blowing of a violent wind, a blast of wind, like the roar of a tornado came from heaven. And then not only could they hear, but they could see there were what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. It was one great flame that represented the spirit separated into many smaller flames and rested on the 120 individuals. And when that tongue of fire and flame rested on the individual, they started to speak in other tongues and in other languages, and apparently then went from the room that they were waiting in. It must have been close to the temple because they were close to a place where a crowd could congregate, and a crowd congregated very quickly. There were Jews who had been living and were born outside of Jerusalem, who had come back to Jerusalem to live in the capital, in the holy place. And uh, they were then, they congregated, they were from everywhere. They were utterly amazed that the Christians, not only what they were saying, but that these Galileans from the north of Israel, that these Galileans could speak in their language. They were, they were shocked. The fascination led them to listen to Peter's words very carefully. And we'll pick up the narrative in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. 
Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter quotes from the prophet Joel. He prophesied in the 8th century, about at the time that the northern kingdom of Israel, again, Israel was divided into two kingdoms of two houses. The northern section was the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah. And Joel prophesied right in the century that the northern kingdom of Israel went into captivity to the Assyrians. And Joel indicated that this would happen, but that at a future time, God would create new spirit spokespersons. The spirit would allow both men and women to speak on God's behalf. Used in the Old Testament, you had to be a prophet, a priest, or a king in order for the Spirit to empower you. And it was only for a period of time. Joel said something's going to change. Normal people, you wouldn't have to be a prophet, a priest, or a king. Different servants will be able to be influenced by the Spirit and speak on the Spirit's behalf. Peter announced then that the time had come. What the crowd was experiencing was what Joel predicted would happen. God was pouring out spirit influence into the world through these 120 Jewish Christians. And as Joel predicted, not just men, but men and women. What's happening is what Jesus described. Jesus said, no one pours, and this is in Luke 5, 37 to 39, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. You know what people, Peter is announcing? The arrival of new wine and new wineskins. That's what's happening in this juncture in salvation history. These Galilean Jewish Christians, they are the new wineskins. And the spirit words they pronounce, that is the new wine. This is a time of new wine and new wineskins. Jesus warned that new wine can't be placed in old wineskins. That's why Judas Iscariot leaked. He represents the house of Judah, old wineskins. The new wineskins was not going to come from the house of Judah. Isaiah prophesied it was going to come from the house of Israel, from the Galileans to the north. Judean Jews in general represented old wineskins. When you think of it, if you, at that time, and really any time, they 
put wine into wine skins. In order to have wine, you would need to have wine skins. You couldn't enjoy wine without wine skins. Spirit influence was transmitted to Gentiles through these Galilean wineskins, not only the 12, not only the 120, but the Jewish crowd who had come from all parts of the world to live in Jerusalem. This was all God's plan. They were, there were Jews from all over the world. They were exposed to these new wineskins and new wine and became themselves, those who believed, new wineskins who would end up leaving Jerusalem because of famines and persecutions and going back to the place where they had been raised elsewhere. They knew the language and they then became the wineskins along with the apostles and the 120. And so we then are in a position where 2,000 years later, because they did their job, we are in a place where we can study these spirit words. And let's listen to Peter as he goes on in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter was the spokesman for the disciples, especially in the early chapters of Acts. He most likely at this point shifted to speak in Aramaic, which is the dialect that everyone in Jerusalem would know and understand. And so he probably was speaking in that familiar dialect and speaking for the 12 and the 120, he bears witness to things that he had seen. That's what apostle needed to be able to do. He needed to have been there when Jesus did this and did that and said this and said that. So what they testified to were the things they were there to see and hear. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his appearance to them after he had been raised from the dead. Um, their testimony was eyewitness testimony. And what Peter's going to indicate, their, his and their eyewitness testimony indicates that Jesus is the figure that was prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament. There would come a Messiah, a king in the line of David, a very powerful religious figure who would speak clearly on God's behalf. And what Peter's going to tell this crowd, Jesus is that person. Um, he says, Peter does, not mincing his words, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death and nailing him to the cross. Peter held the Jewish crowd responsible 
before Jesus' death. Not just them, though. Jews were not alone in their responsibility for Jesus' death. He indicates that wicked men, wicked men is a term used by Jews to describe Gentiles. Gentiles, too, shared in the guilt. This Jesus was hung on a Roman cross. Even as he holds them accountable, Peter balances the elements of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So Jews were responsible and Gentiles were responsible for the death, but God was behind the scenes. He, it was his purpose that sent Jesus to say, do what he said and did. Um, and it was in the Old Testament, God predicted some things concerning the Messiah, the king who would come from the line of David. And Peter then draws from the Psalms and David's words to talk about some of the prophecies that this Messiah, this coming one, would fulfill. In verse 25, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let the Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Peter points to two prophecies concerning the Messiah, one concerning his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into a place of prominence, a place of lordship over the kingdom of God. Uh, in Psalm 16, David writes, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor let your holy one see decay. Peter's reasoning was straightforward. David died. So this Psalm can't be talking about David because he was put in a grave. The psalm is a prophecy of David intended for the descendant who would sit on David's throne. Peter applies the psalm to Christ, who indeed has risen and is the descendant whom David spoke about. Not only from Psalm 16, but he quotes from Psalm 110 and says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David spoke of this figure would be exalted to God's right hand. 
in a position of lordship and governance. David didn't ascend, ascend to heaven, so it couldn't be speaking about him. David must, again, have been speaking about this Messiah, this descendant, and the conclusion is the same as before. Jesus was raised to the right hand of the Father. The ability to send the Holy Spirit would come when Jesus was seated in that place. He has to die, be raised, be exalted before the Father gives him the Spirit, which he pours out. And so what Peter is indicating, what you're seeing to the crowd, this is because Jesus has risen and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He not only has been raised from the dead, now he co-reigns with God the Father as God the Son. Um, Jesus fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies. Somebody did some calculating. What would be the probability that one person could fulfill eight, just eight, Old Testament prophecies? And they did a calculation, and the probability that one person could fulfill eight would be the probability that if you took silver dollars and covered the entire surface of the state of Texas up to two feet deep, okay? So you get this, you got the state of Texas. You take silver dollars and you cover the entirety of the state to two feet. Now, take one silver dollar, make a mark on it, and throw it somewhere in the state of Texas. Okay, you got that? Now, take a person, blindfold them, put them in Texas, tell them to walk around and stoop down and pick up a silver dollar. The chance that one person could fulfill Eight prophecies would be the chance that you putting this blindfolded guy in the state of Texas, that he's going to pull off the coin that was marked. It's, it's astronomical. It's, it's not even possible. It's close to impossible. But Jesus does fulfill not only eight, but more of those prophecies. Um, Peter drives home the resurrection and ascension to make the case that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God and the Messiah, listen to what Peter says in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, the anointed one. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Um, they become new wineskins who will end up 
channeling new wine into the Roman Empire. And you understand what Peter is saying. If Jesus is sent by God, this crowd, he's telling them, you crucified the anointed one. The crowd got the point. They were guilty of rejecting and crucifying the Messiah. What they said, his brothers, what in the world are we going to do? We didn't know. And that's part of the deal here. Now, on this side of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, there's no reason for their unbelief. When Jesus dies on the cross, their sin is not an intentional sin. There wasn't enough data to confirm that Jesus was the Messiah. Sure, he did miracles, but a lot of people claim to do miracles. But Jesus didn't just do miracles. But when Jesus was on the cross and says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. What he's saying, Father, forgive them, this is an unintentional sin. They don't have enough knowledge of me to know. However, when Jesus rises from the dead and is exalted to the right hand, then it's no longer unintentional. This is clearly the Son of God and the Messiah. And that's why they understand now there's a decision. And what he tells them, turn from their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the promised one. Call upon his name and be saved. And that's what they did. He encouraged them to be baptized into the community. We'll talk about that just a little bit and would share the gift of the Spirit they had witnessed. This is a unique juncture in salvation history. It's the birth of the church. There are some phenomena that happen at this unique juncture in salvation history that don't happen all the time. This group is then they will speak in tongues. And, and that was something that existed at that time to those who accepted. As time goes on, though, it's not something that happens to everyone. But at this unique juncture in salvation history, they had to see that the spirit influence was passing from these individuals into these other ones. Um, baptism, though, is one of the things that endures. Very briefly, we've talked about this, the significance of baptism. It is the experience that ushered that those who accepted and believed in Jesus, the way they proclaimed this outwardly. And again, we've talked about why somebody would do that. If you made a personal decision to believe Jesus, the way you reflected that was by making a public declaration. And it was important because when you did that, you were signaling something. And the way it happens in our day, when somebody's baptized, we have a meal and we like it and clap them on the back. And in that day, they would have really signed their death warrant with respect to their ability to be accepted by most people. When individuals observed that they joined this Jesus group, they would have been shunned by their family, not allowed or discouraged from entering the synagogue. And it would force them to cling to others in the church. And it has it had that feeling at the time. However, 
whether it was in that time or this time, the the rite of baptism is a really good signaling or it's it's a good picture of what happens when we become Christians, when we ask Christ and when we we trust Christ. Um, Baptism, again, very quickly, to baptize means to immerse. I want you to picture then if I have a a pail of purple water, okay, and let's say I have a white garment. What ends up happening when I dunk the garment into the water, what's true of the water becomes true of the garment dunked into it. Baptized means immerse. And so when you dunk the, the, the white garment, it comes out purple. What's true of the dye becomes true of the garment. It's a wonderful picture of what happens when we believe Jesus came and speaks on the Father's behalf and died to usher a new covenant. Because when we do that, what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. Jesus was fully accepted by the Father. There's nothing he failed to do. When we trust in Christ, what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. We are fully accepted by the Father, even as he is. Jesus is fully loved by the Father. There's nothing he can do to be more loved. When we put our faith in Christ and are identified with him, what's true of Jesus becomes true of us as well. We are fully loved. Again, baptism is an outward sign of what happens when we put our faith in Christ. And the good news is, as we believe that he is the Messiah, the one who came to usher a new covenant, and as we trust in him, what's true of Christ becomes true of us. We, through faith in Christ, are loved by the Father, as Christ is, accepted by the Father, as his Son is. That's good news. It's good news. Spirit words. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the plan of salvation. It was documented and prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. Thank you for these Galileans, these who testified to the truth that they saw, and how they then, through their testimony, these new wineskins gave new wine to other Jews who would carry this wine into the Roman Empire so that their words would be spoken, preserved, and we can have access to them even 2,000 years later because you are still accepting those who place their faith in your son, the Messiah, and are including them in eternal existence. Thank you for their witness 2,000 years ago and how the witness of these Galilean Jews perseveres to this day. Thank you for speaking to us through them. In Jesus' name, amen.